Hi everyone, welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm Ash Milton, Managing Editor here at Palladium Magazine. Today, we're going to be doing the first of several podcasts with authors published in Palladium 5, our latest print edition. So Palladium 5 is titled Centralizing Society. Each quarter, we have a new theme that Palladium focuses on. We pick our best work on that topic, and of course, we release it in print with custom art, uh, you know, very high-quality materials. Uh, I really love this particular issue. I love the cover art and some of the concepts we've developed here, and uh, of course, the pieces as well. So today, we're going to be talking with Dylan Levi King. Uh, His article in Palladium 5 is entitled The Second Death of Zhao Yulu, and uh, we're going to be talking a bit about, you know, what it means to mobilize society uh, and these weird dynamics of centralization and decentralization uh, in, in Maoist China and beyond. Now, if you want to read Dylan's article or other articles in print, uh, you can find the details at palladiummag.com slash o5 hyphen print. Again, that's palladiummag.com slash o5 hyphen print. Uh, and that'll give you details on how to become a Palladium member. Uh, Palladium 5 and our print editions are not and never will be for sale. Uh, however, if you become a member, we release those four times a year as gifts to our uh, loyal supporters. So Dylan, I'm glad you could join us today. Uh, why don't you just take a moment and introduce yourself? Sure, Ash. Uh, thanks for talking to me. Uh, I usually say I'm a writer and a translator. Translator of usually Chinese literary fiction and a writer on contemporary China most often, usually contemporary Chinese politics and culture and society. My interest in China goes back to my first visit there. Uh, It was by chance. It was a semester abroad in 2005, and it changed my life. When I went there, I discovered, uh, you know, uh, an entire world that I had not known existed. And I returned to Canada and got a degree in Chinese language and lived in China for most of my adult life so far. Uh, In the past couple of years, I've relocated to Tokyo, which has led me to write some some pieces. I wrote a piece for Palladium on on Japanese politics as well. But but China is really my my passion and my area of expertise. Yeah, and you've talked before about how the China you went to in the 2000s is already feels a bit like a different world from China as it stands today. Um, you know, that, that's probably good context in a way for where we're going to be taking this discussion. So, you know, maybe just comment on that a little bit. You know, what was China in the 2000s when you first arrived there? Sure. I mean, you, you speak with people, uh, some of my peers, uh, you know, in, in the Sinology world, they went there in the in the late cultural revolution. So they're, they're, they've seen a change in a much more significant way than I have. But I got there right as a, a certain China that, that was disappearing, a certain kind of a wild edge to it. You know, you, this was when all of the wealth and was being generated through this chaotic, wild energy when there were hundreds and millions of people moving around constantly, when there was still that massive uh, 
migration down south to the to the Pearl River Delta and the Yangtze River Delta to work. And that's really changed. I, I wrote about it in, in, a, in my piece about ketamine for palladium. Mm -hmm. And um, there was there, there's been a, a quite a large change in, in the way that things have been clamped down upon in that the that floating population doesn't float as easily anymore. There were a lot of things you could get away with in China uh, in the 2000s. And of course, in the 1990s that you simply can't get away with now. Right. So a more chaotic China, but also, uh, you know, uh, kind of to the point here, the, the people that are migrating in the 2000s are people who've grown up either just as the Deng, you know, they're born just as the Deng era is starting, or maybe even a little before that in the Cultural Revolution years, uh, or at least in the late 70s. And that, you know, being born into that context, it kind of seems to set the stage in a way for the the, the chaotic years of the 2000s, versus you know, these people are now young adults and moving around the country. Um, do, you know, I, I guess at this point we're we're actually seeing the kids who who were born in the two thousands themselves. Uh, they're the ones now, right. you know, in the universities and and starting careers. Um, and I, I mean, it, it it sounds like it is a sharp difference. You know, the uh, yeah when the, you, when you went the there, conditions, yeah, go ahead. like what, what, in that time, you know, if you were born in the in the late seventies or even the early eighties. You would have grown up most of your life in a, a speaking of urban Chinese, if you were in, in any sort of a city, you would have grown mm -hmm. up in a in a work unit. You would have grown up beside a factory. You would have lived in a factory dormitory um, and it would have been sort of a, a, a sort of an intentional community. And that was sort of ripped asunder. All of those people who grew up in those work units and those factory dormitories saw that saw those things crumble they saw the factories privatized and they saw the work units closed down and um they were they had to make their way in this completely new world for rural chinese it was somewhat different the countryside was already somewhat um changing quite rapidly through the 70s well things in the city were more conservative mm -hmm. and yes now now the kids who are you know coming of age now they they never knew it as anything but what it is. They 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 never lived in a in a factory dormitory. Yeah, and maybe that's a good place to open the piece itself. So again, the piece here um, that we're kicking off with is the second death of Zhao Yulu. Uh, you can read it on the website as well, or in Palladium Five. Um, and again, more information on that uh, you can see palladiumag.com/slash/subscribe. Um, so. This this is an interesting piece, right? We we kind of kick off in actually 1990, you know, Zhao Yulu, he he was this cadre. He's working in the 1950s, the 1960s in the Henan countryside, you know, this very core region of China. But the piece actually opens in 1990 with a poem written by Xi Jinping, a young Xi Jinping, um, in the Fuzhou Evening News. And so maybe let I mean let's let's open there as well. So why why was she writing about Zhao? Who was he? Why is he this interesting figure for you uh, that that embodies this uh, you know this this uprootedness, this mobilization um, of the period? 
So maybe Dylan just just give a little bit of his background as well. You know, he he's born in the war period and ends up joining the Communist Party. Maybe maybe just tell us a bit about what are his beginnings and and how does he end up uh, going to Henan uh, in in the I believe it was the fifties. Right. Uh, yeah, he's born in the he was born in the twenties and um, basically was a was a loyal cadre up until that point he was he was working with the with the communist party before the the end of the civil war uh on land reform projects and in i think i think it's actually in the 1960s he gets sent to to Hunan he didn't really distinguish himself prior to going to Hunan which is which is part of the reason he was sent to such a an out of the way place. He wasn't a he wasn't a rising star in the Communist Party or anything like that. He was just sort of a, a loyal uh, workhorse of the party, uh, often focused on land reform projects. But when he got there, he did distinguish himself. When he got to Hunan, he saw all those horrible conditions. There was desertification and and quicksand and all these other problems, and he had no solutions for it. He had no he didn't know what to do. So the 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 myth, at least, uh, is that he went on a tour of the county that he was in charge of and spoke with everyone and figured out, uh, based on what they were telling him, based on that uh, indigenous knowledge and knowledge from the workers and the farmers, what to do. And from their um, information, he implemented the plan to plant his polonia trees, which was one way to keep the soil on the land and to stop erosion and to deal with desertification. And uh, he was celebrated for that. He was sort of picked as a, as a model cadre in the, in the 1960s. This was a fairly liberal time. This was the time when, when things could have gone another way. This was after um, the Great Leap Forward when when there was uh, sort of a fresh breeze blowing through when everybody thought, well, we uh, we can't be melting down all of our stuff. We can't be collectivizing everything. There's probably other solutions. I mean, that was cut short by the Cultural Revolution, but he was one of those heroes of the of the early 1960s who was selected as a model of sort of pragmatic thinking. You know, Deng Xiaoping is, is around in this time, and that's sort of... Um, He's sort of picked up under the, sort of that early first time that Deng Xiaoping and the reformers are in power. So let, let's maybe talk a little bit about why this is significant, because, you know, I, I can sort of see people who aren't familiar with the setting here. It's like, OK, the, this guy is like a sort of competent local official. That's kind of interesting. But why does that matter? And obviously, the reason it matters is that this is China under Mao. And there's an interesting dynamic here. You know, you you discuss how they're from the start, right? From the time that the communist state is established in China, there is this tension between centralization on the one hand and this this sort of Maoist ideological line of the mass line, right? Which is, is this kind of collective, you know, uh, collective expression of desire and information and will from the population and the idea is that the loyal Communist Party cadre is going to not just hear the 
central committee's, you know, ideological line, but they're also going to kind of listen to and respond to people in a local region and figure out how to implement it, right? That's the, that's the idea. Uh, that's, that's the way it is formally presented. Now, obviously, in practice, uh, we, we, we see a lot of back and forth with this, and repeatedly at the top, the centralizing uh, tendency wins out over that sort of formal commitment to a mass line or anything like this. And, you know, even, even Deng, right, in, uh, in, in the early era, Deng is actively involved in, in these collectivizing experiments in the countryside, as I recall. Um, you know, so it's, it's not kind of as if any one individual, uh, even top individuals in the party are kind of pure representatives of one or another tendency here, right? People are moving back and forth between them, depending on what, you know, how the political winds are shifting. That being said, we, I, you know, it's, it's this interesting situation because I think definitely we in the West and we also in kind of the general liberal democratic world we tend to think of these 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 regimes uh you know generally speaking authoritarian regimes as ones that don't really want the general population to be too politically involved right and sometimes that's true right if if you go to if you had gone to like franco's spain or um even even putin's russia right the, the there is there is this kind of sense where normal people ideally should not be too politically involved, right? Sure, you know, you there maybe you pay a bit of lip service to the the official party line or whatever just to show that you're a good citizen, but you should not be politically organizing. You shouldn't have political opinions, and and that's kind of you know that allows the the ruling the governing class to feel fairly secure. This is an interesting scenario in China because Mao actually accelerates the politicization of the general population. And as we can see with Zhao, he, he does act on it to an extent. He actually sends people out, send, sends very, you know, polit sends political apparatchiks across the country and wants them to actually mobilize the population in extreme ways, right? It ones resulting in you know, death and in the rebuilding of entire economies. I think that's that's actually a lot stranger of a situation than we tend to give it credence for. Um, can you just explain, you know, why if we're dealing here with, you know, it's an authoritarian state, it's it does not have this commitment to liberal democracy, and it's fragile, right? It's coming out of the war period. Uh, it's you know the 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 communist party state at this time is not that secure in china why yeah. are they willing to throw themselves into this kind of mass mobilization of society i think it was the the only solution you know since like even in the in the late Qing dynasty so so running up to through the late 1800s and the early 1900s you were already seeing that the localities were breaking away from central command the the things that the the commands that came from beijing to do to do whatever they commanded were often not being uh, implemented at the at the lower levels and that didn't improve under you know after the Qing dynasty fell you had the warlords controlling large parts and and uh the nationalists fighting back and forth the japanese invading so 
the country hadn't been unified in you know hundreds of years in the way that it that it was uh, at present. Uh, so that was that was the the only solution. You know, when Mao first took power, he decided he would carve the country up into several administrative districts. Mm-hmm. And what happened was that those basically became power bases that could operate against him. So through the decentralizing this horizontal decentralization and getting everybody involved was a way to stitch the country together. It was a way to make sure the party ideology penetrated down to the lowest levels. If it had been um, a sort of a vertical layout like it was in the Soviet Union, it becomes harder. It would have been very difficult, and it was difficult in the in the early 1950s to get that penetration of the ideology all the way down to the center by activating everyone, by sending all those uh, apparatchiks and cadres out to uh, learn from and and teach the 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 rural people. Uh, that was a way to to stitch the entire country together through the ideology of of the Maoists. So it's it's kind of a high low dynamic then. Like you there there's these experiments where you know officials have control over districts, but what presumably ends up happening then is that as these places develop, the local institutions become loyal to those officials rather than to Mao and sort of to the party as a center. Therefore activate the the bottom you know activate the peasants send your loyalists out and and you know remove those middle bureaucrats and make sure that the like i mean we we should point out here right in in this is post-war china a lot of these institutions are having to be built from scratch or effectively from scratch uh and and so there's this question now of who are those going to be loyal to so do do you think it's accurate to see it just as this kind of high low dynamic or you know should is there more going on than that i think that's 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 fairly true um it's it's also a way of replicating um things that were in place So notably, it you know, no one else in China had really accomplished this. I mean, we see in the 20s, the 30s, you know, this warlord era where people managed to seize control of part of the country and, and it sort of stalls out after that. And then in the end, you have Chiang Kai-shek and you have his, his northern campaigns and he manages to take control of far more. But then the Japanese invasion is already happening this is effectively the first time, uh, you know, since what effectively the 1910s that a Chinese regime is actually in control of all of, you know, mainland China. So right. and actually in the in the in the late Qing Dynasty, when they were figuring out how to save themselves, there were many um, suggestions of this kind of federalism. I guess you could call it. That were never implemented. But yes, it it all 
it, Mao Zedong was the first one to unify mm-hmm. it as for hundreds of years. So, I mean, what what let, let's talk a little bit about um, the level of modernization here, because I, I think there's a lens we should take here where, you know, th- this. Obviously, we're dealing with an ideological project here, but we actually see, you know, uh, equ- equivalent tendencies in in all all countries as they undergo industrial modernization right and so we you know in england we have the enclosure of the commons we have people being uprooted you know by by the tens of thousands the hundreds of thousands and being pushed into cities and kind of being very forcibly conditioned into a completely new set of social norms a new way of working and of family life you know this is a, a revolutionary level of transformation in China, in particular, takes on this Maoist form, but I, I wonder how how inevitable do you think it was outside of the Maoist thing? You know, like let's imagine that somehow Qing China had managed to save itself, and industrialization had happened under the imperial government. Do you think we would have seen something similar, or, or do you think that the ideological aspect here actually does matter for figuring out what's going on? Mm, I I think that. What looked inevitable until 1949 was, and and even for a time after that, was that the country would not be, would not look as it is as it is now. It would be divided up. Um, it, it, there would be a, a south and and a north, and and the warlords would maintain control of Manchuria. Um, I think there is there is something to the Maoist ideology that that worked. You know that not. You know, often the the that ideology was interpreted in different ways, which was one strength of having it, sort of, uh, that sort of federalist model. Those cadres going down to the to the countryside who could uh, tweak the message depending on uh, you know on the local culture and the local history. So the cadres going down to to you know Hainan Island were not always giving the same message as the the cadres who were in the in the wealthy uh, Yangtze River Delta. Talk, talking to to rice farmers there. So that's a good point, right? Because it seems like the recipe is there for some, you know, really successful or corrupt cadre to start just, you know, becoming the local interpreter of the party message and building their own power base. Um, obviously, this this does happen to a degree uh, because we have the Cultural Revolution later. Uh, kind of overthrowing some of these people. But it, you know, there's never a moment here where Mao's rule and and central party rule is really challenged. Like, why do you think this is? I mean, did, did, was the party actually just able to discipline all these cadres to, to that level? Or, or was there something, was there actual loyalty going on here? Like, let, let's talk a little bit about the psychology of the cadres here. I think there was a lot of loyalty, you know, like if you were someone like Xiao Yulu, you would have seen, you would have been born in a time when the country was, was basically on its knees when it was being carved up by, you know, domestic warlords and, and foreign imperialists. And the Communist Party had, had, you know, arguably, with the help of the nationalists, defeated the Japanese and had, you know, had held out. I think there was a lot of belief in the in what they were doing. Uh, you know, Xiao Yulu was a he died a true believer. Hmm. Um, but also that 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 model that they that they developed, where you know you could 
carry a different message down to different places and carry it out in different ways. Um, it sort of fragmented things somewhat. So if you had a, a if Jiao Yulu had gone to Hunan and and had started doing terrible things and creating sort of a, a new power base for himself, it would have been somewhat um, isolated. It wouldn't have it wouldn't have threatened the center and the the, the structure that they had built with the you know the county level answering to the to the provincial level answering up and then even down 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 to, from the village to the township um there was a lot of supervision over each other um, right so you there wasn't a lot you could get away with right so you have people watching each other and and the incentive is uh you, you can't quite deviate too much under that system right you know you, you people like Dao Yu Lu, he deviated somewhat from the system but it, it was working um, mm -hmm. And also the the fact that those peasants had just uh, been sort of empowered. They had they had kicked out the the landlords, and uh, they were quite militant themselves. They were sort of a check on the the power of local cadres, which you know maybe went off the rails in the Cultural Revolution. But that's that's what was going on. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there there's a model here. Um, we can talk about this a little more later on, but. Uh, if you build an institution where you formally integrate methods for uh, officers or, you know, people carrying out orders and operations to change or challenge orders, that's actually quite powerful, right? I'm thinking here of, you know, the German, uh, the great general staff and their their military doctrine, their organizational doctrine, which, which has uh, a similar component. Obviously, it's military operations here and not sort of ideological country building per se but you know you have officers able to deviate in how they carry out orders provided the goal is secured uh you can you can challenge orders on the basis of you know gaining new information and especially in a military structure that's that's a very surprising development but it's like the structural form that seems to play out and that, you know, to a degree, it seems like industrial societies or liberal societies, you know, some version of that, you see it popping up again and again. And, and you know, to, to the degree that that's true, it seems like this is might be one of the strengths that gets developed in, in sort of like the modern Western world and then the modern world as it pushes out further that we should highlight as one of the reasons that that model has been successful, right? So, uh, you know, just kind of to zoom out a bit, right? At Palladium, one of our ongoing questions is looking at not just what has failed in the liberal world order, but also what has worked, right? What what in this, like, the sort of liberal modern centuries has actually been the source for functionality in governance, for building wealth in society, for creating competent elites. And clearly there have been a number because this order has actually endured for a long time and has survived wars and generated a lot of wealth. Uh, and, you know, th this is actually, I think, something interesting that we should highlight. And, uh, you know, may maybe we can talk a bit more later about where that comes from. Um, for now, uh, I just want to return quickly to Zhao himself. So, you know... He dies about two years before the Cultural Revolution. 
and then during that period his memory is defamed uh why is that well um Zhao Yunlu and, and those cadres like him who were taking chances and and not always playing by the by the books um they didn't really fit with with what happened after 1966 with the Cultural Revolution. Zhao Yulu died in, in 1964 and um, his, his, he named a successor or somebody who was groomed under him took over the role and he was quickly uh, sent out of office after 1966. That uh, reformist line of Deng Xiaoping and Liu Shaoqi was completely reversed. Um, there was obedience to the party in a very explicit uh, way was what was being celebrated. Of course, there was sort of factional battles within the party that the reformists that the reformers lost out on. Um, but yeah, uh, Yulu was celebrated for a very brief time in the 1960s before the Cultural Revolution was started and he was cast aside. Mm. So we go we go now into the reform and opening up era uh, under Deng. And there's an interesting convergence that happens here, right? We, we move from the, the, you know, the golden era and the chaotic eras of Maoism. We, we move into this this reform period where, where things are now about markets and about building wealth, right? And very different language and very different values. And yet, despite that, the, the, the personality and the pragmatism of Zhao Yulu becomes admirable again, right? And I, I think this is a, like that in itself is something that it's worth looking, it's worth focusing on and acknowledging because, you know, we, the, the degree of structural reform in China is significant, that being said, one of the things that people at the time missed, and I think people still miss to a degree, is the emphasis that Deng's party put on continuity with the past, right, and with the Mao period. And so we get these statements about how Mao was, uh, I forget the percentages he uses, but, you know, mo mostly correct and only somewhat wrong. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, there is no fundamental contradiction between how you know, Deng's thought and between Mao's thought. And, and now we even see, right, um, in, in, in the late 80s and in 1990, heroes of the Maoist era being kind of brought back and rebranded somewhat, but presented again as people to look up to. You know, what's, what, what is the, the source of continuity there? What is the thing about Zhao and people like him that makes them useful as symbols for Deng's period? Sure. I, I, Deng Xiaoping really... Uh, leaned heavily on on Maoist uh, orthodoxy. Uh, he went back to, you know, this this all comes usually is described. This kind of federalism in China is usually described with the phrase of the the two initiatives, which was something uh, Mao Zedong himself wrote about in uh, the late fifties, I believe. He was looking at the Soviet Union and saw it wasn't a good model. So he gave that, gave a speech saying, uh, we need to have two initiatives, initiatives from the center and initiatives uh, from the localities. So basically what Deng Xiaoping did was he took what uh, Mao had written 
and repurposed it for marketization and uh, reforming the economy. He he took the two initiatives and he wrote it into the constitution in 1982. So what he used to further decentralization and take power away from uh, central authorities who are often very conservative, who are not interested in, in reform, was to use that, that Maoist, um, Maoist doctrine of the two initiatives. That was perfect for what he needed. And it was also a way to continue, to provide that continuation. He was just, whatever he was doing, he was just relying on the chairman's orders. Let's talk a little bit about the conditioning here, right? Let's let's sort of move from Zhao Yulu to a, a general population. Um, we kind of mentioned this at the start, but you have a situation here where, uh, you know, for a brief period, institutions are getting built up. Cultural revolution happens. They get torn down again. In the 80s, you are building them up again. But at this point, the population, you know, is used to operating in extremely chaotic environments. Um, you know, you, you point out that in the countryside, especially even in the, the, the late 70s already, the, by, definitely by the early 80s, uh, the, the the Maoist collectivization stuff is essentially being rolled back unofficially. Uh, you have light industry, you have private agricultural experiments. You know, you have a population where you you really make or break your career based on results. And there is this ideological pressure to be able to make the right connections and sell yourself as in line with party platforms. That being said, uh, that's sort of dependent on actually having done something and on being able to build, you know, projects, infrastructure, institutions that can function basically well. And if you manage to do that, then, you know, it, it sort of feels like the party will find some way to, you know, declare why you're actually in line with whatever the orthodoxy is, right? That That's sort of a, that's downstream of actually being being functional and also being in line with what the party's actual, you know, hard material interests are in developing the country. Um and and that I mean like this is the population that develops China effectively throughout the 80s the 90s the 2000s and um that so you know this this long conditioning and I mean it was a, a terrible experience to live through but for those who came out the other side and 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 were in the positions to start you know uh, doing doing real work when they were free to do so um there were actually weird strengths that came out of it as well uh and i you know and and that sort of brings us and xi jinping uh it seems like will be the last leader who actually came to power in that era um you know he as you point out dylan he makes his career in part by going out into the provinces even though he's he's kind of from a cushy family and he has to prove himself as well uh, but that that tradition and those conditions are now passing by. So maybe comment a little bit on that, and uh, you know what what is changing under Xi Jinping politically, and why does it matter that he may be the last leader who grew up in this more chaotic period? Sure, um, and you know it's worth noting as as you said, reform doesn't really start 
1979. It's going on from 1966. It's just nobody's talking about it. So in the countryside, there, as you said, there's all sorts of experimentation and, and things that lead up into what happens in the 80s and the 90s. But yeah, at a certain point, uh, a country built on so much chaotic energy and um, that developmentalism, it can't continue. At least Xi Jinping seems to believe it, it can't continue. So what Xi Jinping is, has done in, has, has been an attempt to re-centralize power, to take power away from the localities and to discipline the cadres through you know, anti-corruption campaigns, but also shifting what he wants out of them. So there's no longer the, the, you know, the unspoken agreement um, as long as you're developing your area and you're raising GDP, we'll let you do whatever you like. Um, those, those days are done. It's, it's sort of an attempt, I think, to, to shift to, you know, an, an economy and a society that will suit the conditions that that, that chaotic energy created, that, the wealth that it built and suit a new demographic reality where you won't have um, hundreds of millions of people available to stock your reserve army of labor anymore and ending the the chaos that was going on on the fringes that could eventually uh, threaten the leadership of the of the communist party so it's just sort of bringing everything back in together um, re-centralizing power and sort of taming some of the chaos on the on the margins. So, you know, I I, I want to kind of get um, a little bit into the governance culture side of this. Uh, there's been this development in China itself, where you know the, this rhetoric about the fourth industrial revolution uh, exists there as well, and you know I I think that we at least are generally pretty skeptical. I mean about uh, some of what gets put under that umbrella, right? It, yeah. it's, this, it's this very easy umbrella for anyone to brand themselves with, um, kind of the way that Belt and Road has been as well. But um, rather than, you know, attributing too much to things like automation, I think it is actually important that we figure out why that label is politically attractive. And what what there seems to be is this, it's this desire to closely monitor um people to to kind of make sure that they're actually fairly depoliticized both both private sector workers and and even in in a weird way um you know pe people in the party where I, I, perhaps for the party depoliticized is the wrong term but there you know there's this emphasis on ideological education but you know it, it seems like there is less and less room for that to be applied in very pragmatic ways um it, like it's this weird political equivalent of like resume careerism, right? Where you just want to have the the right phrases stamped on you, and and that's your model for advancement. And obviously, that creates a very very different set of cadres and and people being promoted in the party than would have existed, you know, either in Zhao's era or in the Dengist era. Um, 
you know, m- maybe comment on that. Like, what what are what are we seeing there, and what how is she actually trying to discipline the party, and what is the long term effect then for the actual people governing China? Sure, I mean the the process of depoliticization is something that that actually starts in the in the Cultural Revolution. I mean, this is the argument of of a of a new left thinker called Wang Hui, who says that the the factional battles and and the chaos in the countryside is is the first step towards depoliticizing the country, and that just continues through um, through reform and opening and you know the aftermath of of nineteen eighty nine. Um, so so at this point, I mean, it is a it is a depoliticized country. You know what? You can turn on the state television and see all the the slogans, but they tend to be depoliticized slogans. Like um, the big one of the last couple of years was uh, "Sweep the yellow and beat the black," which is like get rid of any um, anything sort of hedonistic and and wicked and uh, beat uh, criminals and corruption so it's a what is it in chinese uh so that's that's a depoliticized slogan so it's xi jinping is is needs to figure out how to run china as a depoliticized place where there isn't mass participation and that's that that's sort of the solution offered by that fourth industrial revolution uh and and that intense technical uh focus of social governance and in a way that um, that style of of social governance through technology through big data through surveillance it requires a lot of centralization you can't run that as a as a fragmented program so you need to re-centralize everything if you're if you're running um if you're trying to do big data governance, you need to get as much data and combine it together as much as you can mm. uh, for it to work. So uh, that that's that's one reason to re-centralize everything is that it just fits the the what is replacing that mass participation um, system. You know, there's there'll, there'll be no if you can send cadres down to Hunan now, but nobody's interested in in that political message rallying around it that's not a that's not the way to govern the country anymore so let's actually look at that more directly then you know we i think we've been pretty empirical and descriptive here um but what we're in fact seeing weirdly is in china actually a very similar uh set of assumptions to what what seemed to have come into the west um, from the 80s onward as well, right? Which it's interesting that this happens at the same period. This idea that you can have depoliticization, you you can kind of, you you can also try to like reduce human decision-making and rely on, you know, technology to gather the right information, set some basic parameters, and then, you know, all, all you kind of have to do is figure out, you know, do do your 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 evidence-based policy and test it out. But you you don't really need to have um, a very motivated or mobilized set of people carrying out you know this sort of day to day governance stuff because obviously people are a problem and they can become corrupt or they can become lazy and they can make bad decisions. But 
that assumes that this, you know, the the kind of big data thing is actually going to work. And I think, you know, it seems like we should be pretty skeptical of this claim of, you know, technology lets you surveil, but it doesn't actually, uh, you know, it it's even within China itself. It's, it's un, you know, we, we've had all this news about things like social credit. It seems like in practice, what you actually have are fairly minimal programs. Um, I mean, maybe just tell us a bit like what what is actually happening with the technology side here, because it seems like the everything else seems to rest on this assumption that you can actually use the technology, use use the social credit or the surveillance or the you know the the big data gathering programs, and and they work and they can be relied on. But what's the actual situation there? Mm, I mean. You know, there's so, there's so much overblown coverage of of social credit uh, in the West. It's it's hard to know. You know, I think a lot of people don't have really any idea of what it what it looks like. Um, all of these things are closely connected with the with the tech industry in China, just just like they are like they are in the West. These these programs are being developed by uh, Alibaba. They built in Hangzhou, which is also where their corporate headquarters is, this city brain project. And that's sort of become a, a model that a lot of uh, localities have copied, where you have uh, centralizing data. They were, they were always collecting a lot of data in China, every little um, local police office and you know city administration office would be collecting information that would sit on paper or on a database somewhere and not be integrated. So in places like Hangzhou, following that city brain model, they're sort of centralizing all of that data they collect, which could be, you know, things that that the government would have collected before, but also uh, surveillance data. And, you know, the, the social credit is, is usually part of that, where, uh, you know, you're, all of that data is being put into a file that each person is connected to. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote an original version of this, of this piece that was more enthusiastic about that, um, the, the possibilities of this. And, and the, it, it has been good in some ways in that it's sort of swept out a lot of the bureaucracy that survived from the 1970s and the 1980s that was never updated um but i you know it's it's hard to say what it what it's going to look like in the future you know the the pandemic response has sort of accelerated uh this to a great extent with with everybody being issued with their with their you know their passes where they can display on their phone their vaccination status and their you know, their, their test results. Um, I don't think there's any backing away from this now, whether or not it will be successful. I think the, the die is cast, the, the old, uh, infrastructure of governance, you know, with, with, you know, the Tiao Yulu style or even the, the 1980s, um, chaos on the margins is, is impossible now. I think it's, it's all in on, that fourth industrial revolution, you know, big data surveillance, governance. So he, here's um, a question then. 
we're you know because China is developing, you you see obviously a lot of upward pressure um, into you know the like economically into the upper class and the upper middle class, but then politically also into the the party elites. It seemed like one one benefit in a sense of the cadre system had been that you had these pathways uh, to to power. Uh, to influence, right? You could kind of work your way up the ranks, and those people were fairly well aligned with the party because, at the end of the day, you know, no matter how successful you were locally, it was the party leadership that was going to determine whether you get promoted or not. Uh, what we see now is not just a more closed leadership, but like insofar as technology uh, is successfully, you know, displaces or replaces these local party hierarchies, a lot of ladders get pulled up, basically, you know, at, at the very point that there seems to be a lot of upward pressure, right? And and so that seems to be a recipe for th- this kind of weird elite overproduction dynamic that we also have here. The difference being that in the Chinese context, that doesn't really filter out into like inter-party politics. It, it seems to filter out into regional factions and into party factions, and and you know may, maybe also into like weird subcultures. I'd be interested to hear what you expect on that front, like whether you'd agree with that analysis or whether there's some reason to think that that actually this doesn't happen and like the party actually keeps a grip on on these like ambitious new urban urban classes. Yeah, I I, I think I think they do. I think the the discipline over. Um... Over people within the party and uh, you know Chinese society at large, either through you know old school um, will come and drag you out, or this new style of of surveillance just gives that that central leadership so much control. In a way, it's sort of a sort of a radical experiment in democracy, um, where. The party is now so interested in public opinion. That's that's become a big thing. Every in tracking public opinion, there's there's an entire industry serving that uh, in the private sector for the for the government and tracking what everybody is thinking, what everybody is saying at at each particular time, and sort of managing their response to it in a way that that we've never really seen before you know there would be those those localities who would have interests that would be met by their local cadre their local uh, government but now it's all dissipated out into that you know um as to pay that uh alibaba ceo former alibaba ceo says that single particle uh governance everything is smashed apart into this uh into the individual and it really takes power away from the the localities that would have had power before so if you know there's there's no going back to Jiao Lu, there were probably a lot of people who were not impressed with his uh polonia project but as long as it was going well and and people weren't rioting he was allowed to do what he wanted to do but now there would have been careful monitoring of of social media to see what the public opinion was in in Weishir County at the time and he could have been yanked based on that hmm. but so 
is that not a recipe for becoming more and more risk averse, which seems to be what we're seeing. I mean, the thing about these, these sort of like these high developmentalist eras is obviously a lot of stuff changes and a lot of it is opposed at the time. And then eventually, you know, the benefits start accruing or, or at the very least people become used to the, you know, the new way that things are done and that opposition sort of dissipates. But it's, it seems like, it seems like a lot of successful uh, missions or projects in government depend on doing something that might have opposition and pushing through it. I mean, the you know the the very mundane version of this is like housing in big cities around the world, right? Where you you know you can't even build uh, an eight story building because a few people at you know a consulting committee get mad about it and the recipe seems to be general stall. Uh, do you expect that that will increase in the Chinese context also? Yeah, I mean, when I say a radical experiment in democracy, I, I don't think, uh, I don't see it as a good thing. Um, you know, mm. the uh, that old Maoist democracy, for all its failures, was uh, avoided many of the things that, that or the Dungist uh, democracy and uh, avoided many of the problems with uh, Xi Jinping's version of, monitoring public opinion to make decisions. And I, I think it does make the country incredibly risk adverse. You can see um, the property tax situation, which was touted as a as a big deal that was going to, you know, make it uh, more affordable to live in the city and bring in a whole bunch of revenue to the government. There's, there's no way that can be done when you have, uh, when you're closely monitoring public opinion like that. And as well, with everything centralized, it makes it harder to have those to to say, let's say, Tianjin uh, to suddenly um, carry out its own property tax uh, program. You know, localities still do experiments with with property taxes and whatnot, but it's not the same as it as it could have been before. So just every step becomes incredibly difficult to take. You can see it with the the pandemic response now and the and the the sort of the the craziness that's happening in in Shanghai there's 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 no way to take a take a bold step anymore everything is down to public opinion and and uh big data and whatnot well which seems easily manipulate like easily manipulated i mean th this is sort of the weird the weird aspect of this right because we think of the chinese state as being a state that can manipulate public opinion fairly easily, you know, because obviously it disciplines the media and there's a lot of state media and there, you know, WeChat even gets surveilled. But the government does not act like a government that is sort of, oh, we're confident we can just kind of generate the the opinions we want to generate. Like you, a government like that, you would expect to kind of do whatever it wanted to do and just be confident that it would uh, it would work, or they could at least cover up the disagreement in the population. It doesn't seem like the Chinese state thinks like that at all. No. So should we... No, should I, we, I don't think it does. Like, yeah. to what degree, I guess, is that self-imposed, though, then? Is is it that they can't act... They, they aren't actually confident that they can control um, organization or, or political information? Or are are they actually somehow committed to this, like, public opinion poll you know, method of, of being legitimate. Yeah, I think there's there's an obsession with with uh, stability. And that's been what uh, 
successive leaders, even before Xi Jinping, have have wanted stability, harmony. Um, there's a great, you know, we we look at China and we see, oh, um, this event happened and it was censored. But it's not as if nobody heard about it, and it's not as if word is spreading, and it's not it's not as if opinion is being expressed privately or uh, in various spaces online getting around the, the censorship. And there is a great fear of instability. There is a great fear of returning to how things looked in the 1980s and even the 1990s. Those were, those were times when there was great instability. There, there was, 1989 is remembered just for a protest in Beijing. And, but that's not true. It was a protest all around the country. There were protests in, in, Massive protests all throughout the late 80s, like 88, 86. There were massive protests. In the 1990s, you had uh, 1990s and, and 2000s. You had really big labor unrest. You had um, a veterans of the Vietnam War marching every year, uh, causing trouble. There is a great fear that that could get out of hand and it must be carefully managed and you can't press too hard in any specific place for fear of something popping out that can't be that a lid can't be kept on you know it's uh it's not like it's there like going back to the property tax thing that would upset a lot of people who own homes and there's a fear that that those people shouldn't be upset because it might lead to uh like a, an a, uh, an elite level uh, dissatisfaction with the with the government of the Communist Party and some challenge. So the fact that this seems to converge so much with the West is interesting, right? Because we, you know, th there's so much talk about systems competition and this sort of thing now. But in fact, it seems like the the the, the governance culture is actually hitting the same crunch point, which is this, you know, the, this 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 general risk aversion a sort of like suspicion of things that seem too foreign that the the governing system doesn't know how to digest and like th this this method of legitimacy where you sort of outsource why you can or can't do things to public polling uh and you know to the, this kind of sense that it, it's unpopular but not in the way that the old mass parties would have done it right where like i, I think this is actually a, a very significant difference in you know on the surface it's there's still kind of you know party states or party democracies but having power through a massive human machine of cadres or apparatchiks or, or you know city machines or whatever um, I mean, the, the Democratic Party in the U.S., right, its roots are in a, a system like that as well, uh, versus this sort of like centralized, um, what would you call it, like passive technological administration way of thinking about it, where you actually really don't want these machines existing. You want to break them apart and let the, the central leadership really be the main decision makers. That's that's a completely different way of understanding power and how you exercise power. And it's, I, I mean, I, I'd be interested to hear whether you do agree that that's, that's a convergence with what's happening in the West, or do you see these as, as actually different somehow? I think there is a, I think you, you, you know, China replicates in its own way, a lot of the institutions and, uh, 
that, that exist in the West or a lot of the governance practices that exist in the West, but do it with Chinese characteristics. Right. And, and at this point, you can see them converging to, uh, to a great extent. But, you know, the Chinese are better at it. They're, they're more efficient in, you know, uh, big data integration and surveillance and those sorts of things just because of, you know, the nature of, of the society and of the legal system and, uh, you know, the nature of the Chinese constitution. Um, they're, they're much better at it and they're getting there much faster than uh, Western states are which are, you know, a little bit more chaotic than China is. But yeah, I think, uh, I think you, to understand China at present, um, it's, it, it would be foolish to try to understand it as completely disconnected from governance trends in the rest of the world, especially the yeah. West. It's, uh, it seems like a very Pyrrhic victory, right? It's, you know, I, I've had this take before that, China and the West are now part of the same civilization, right? It's it's like it's something like industrial civilization or, you know, the civilization of capital or or something along those lines. There's but what I mean by that is that the forms of wealth and power resemble each other and and are maybe in fact the same institutions. Um, you know, if anyone listening has read like Carol Quigley, uh, he talks a lot about the instrument of expansion in a civilization. And in our civilization, that's this kind of mix of industrial and financial capital um, in production and ownership. And, you know, those institutions are, sure, there's differences in private or state ownership and how funding works and so on. But, the, like, fundamentally, the same logic is at play there. And it seems like if, you know, it sounds like you agree, Dylan, that what's actually happening there is a slide into risk aversion and into basically an inability to act as a state or as a society so china being better at the west than the west at achieving that doesn't seem like much of a victory in the long run then right no i don't i don't i don't think so um you know that as you said the same you know logic of you know financialization uh and you know, fourth industrialized, fourth uh, industrial revolutionization uh, is is at play in China, and you know, Xi Jinping is centralizing power back in the state, but it's not operating. You know, uh, this, the Chinese state is not operating as it would in 1978 or 1968. It's uh, in service of you know financialization of the economy, and. Uh, you know, it's it's not Stalinist. It looks more like the West. Hmm. Do um, you know it it it, pre it presents this interesting scenario where you could imagine, you know, that that China, like in a sense, you know, the West is not as competent or mobilizable enough to achieve that to the speed to the extent China does. But having seen maybe the effects of it in china you could imagine that you know if you know if china hits that target really really hard and and we actually see the level of stagnation that that kind of outsourcing brings you know assuming that that prediction is correct maybe that provides an example for reform in a different direction here it's the scenario where china probably does become more powerful than us 
us being the West over the next 50 years or the next 20 years. But a hundred years from now, will that still hold? I mean, one possibility is China itself manages to do internal reforms. But it, I mean, frankly, China just as a civilization or as a society, it seems like the, the difficulty and cost of reform, like its ability to absorb damage is, well, at least from the perspective of its leadership, it, it, it seems like they consider China to be a very fragile society. Like once things collapse, they take a century or more to reconfigure. Whereas the West has, you know, it, it has had several sort of political cataclysms from the French Revolution and the two world wars you know, onward, and it has actually reconfigured and rebuilt itself within a generation. And that ability to absorb damage and, and sort of endure chaos seems important. Uh, I, I'd be, you know, do you have a, a sense or prediction on who wins on that front? Mm. You know, I think that obsession with stability is is an obsession of the the current leadership who, you know, are, are entering power in this Xi Jinping time, who would not like to lose their power, who would like to maintain their position um, because of how the economy works and, and the, the amazing amount of wealth uh, that these members of the party have built up. I don't think there's really any danger in in instability. Um, China's gone through, you know, the, the 1980s and the 1990s were times of immense uh, chaos and China weathered it just fine, but the the leadership of the Communist Party was sometimes threatened. So I I, I think that that's well, and sometimes overthrown. Yes, in fact, yes, right. Uh, so I I think that it's really a, an obsession of the current leadership more than a, an obsession of you know Chinese society. They do like their stability, but I think that that fear that's driving them towards that. Um, you know, surveillance and social credit is about maintaining their own particular role. Uh, you know, and it, it does make it very difficult to predict what sort of reform could challenge that because it it's very unlikely to be, uh, you know, a, a return to, to the Maoist mass line. Um, it's more likely to be you know what? What I always say with the Communist Party is that the that the Communist Party is very moderate, and uh, there are there are groups within Chinese society that would take the country in um, in a radically different direction. And uh, you know, for all their their faults and their their evil deeds, the Communist Party is basically a good thing for the world and for global stability, because. Uh, I think the reform that what what's coming next would be uh, much uglier than than what's happening mm. now. Yeah, I mean, my, my guess has always been that if you had a collapse of the Communist Party, the most likely scenario is you know some some PLA colonel or, or general or something steps in and just leans hard into the 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 Han ethnic nationalism and you know harder crackdown on Xinjiang and Tibet and. You know, maybe we get the invasion of Taiwan. Maybe we get stuff in the South China Sea. Maybe we get something in Mongolia. Like you know, that's that seems to be the most powerful ideological force that a successor could try to tap into if they really wanted to sharply break with Communist Party continuity. 
um, the the sort of the idea that you get this like Guangdong sort of liberalism ruling the country after CCP collapse seems pretty unlikely. Let's see. Yeah, I mean, it would be that's that's really what the Communist Party is 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 keeping in check right now. That um, you know, as long as the Communist Party is in power, there will never be an invasion of Taiwan. I'm I feel comfortable saying that, and and uh, hmm. it's it's very unlikely. You know, they're quite a force for, um, you know, they're the liberal party, you know, the, the socially liberal party who who are have the, um, you know, the all China women's federation looking after feminist issues. And, you know, you hear from, uh, you know, Western uh, dissidents about the wickedness of the Communist Party. It's it's definitely wicked. But, uh, yeah, as you said, uh, what what would come next would be you know, a PLA overthrow, uh, you know, uh, they would ally themselves with various business interests and uh, it would look very ugly. So here, okay, let me try and give the, the contrarian angle to that then. You you made the point earlier that in in the case of this, you know, had, had Mao not managed to hold central power, the country likely would have collapsed and split up into multiple territories what do you think the chances of that would be in a CCP collapse? Because the you know the hawk argument could be that well, maybe uglier stuff comes. But if you have basically like five ugly little rump Chinas as opposed to one powerful unified China, that's better. I I don't think it would ever happen. I think um, somebody smart enough and and with the right you know right connections would would uh, would pull the plug on that, especially if they were within the military. Uh, there's, there's no, there's not, not those, those bases of regional power no longer exist as they did in, in right. previous times. There's no, um, there's nobody ready to declare the, uh, you know, the, the federal state of, of Guangdong or whatever. It's just, those mm -hmm. don't exist anymore and, and they aren't coming back. I guess back. even the language is, is unified now in a way that it wasn't at the time. Yeah. And everything over the last decades has been, um, working vigorously against that kind of thing happening. Hmm. So I, I want to maybe in this last section, I, I, I want to come back to this, um, the, let's call it like the, the, the spirit of, of Zhao Yulu uh, in, in terms of the, the, the culture we're talking about. Um, and I, I want to look at this as like, what, what was the actual thing? That, what is the actual thing that... Um, even Western liberal democracies were doing in, you know, in the 19th and 20th centuries in that period of like a lot of expansion and growth, uh, you know, in politics and in industry that we haven't really managed to uh, highlight, I guess, with, with the language that the liberal paradigm uses. And, you know, I, l let me just take this in a slightly different direction. So one one topic that I've been researching recently is actually um, this this same tendency in the French Revolution. And so it is this early tendency in Western liberalism, and particularly people like Henri Gregoire, uh, who is a, a Jacobin and a French bishop, in fact, the 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 one of the shelling points in the French Revolution becomes this idea of regeneration. And their, you know, the understanding from that perspective is that the goal of, of the French Revolution and of this, you know, the sort of broader democratic 
transformation in the West is that um, citizens, you know, first the population is transformed from vassals or peasants into citizens, right, of a, of a national state. And having done that, they then become mobilized, right? And so, uh, you know, and, and you have different versions of this. I mean, it, it's a fairly, it, it's weirdly restrained in the French context. You have a national army, but you, you literally have people, you, you have these, you know, reformist vicars and priests going out into the countryside, trying to educate peasants, trying to encourage them to, to you know, figure out new technologies for agriculture to try and, you know, oh, this strategy works, we should spread it around. It's interesting because this this is a very, you know, Chow Yu Lu way of thinking about um, what, you know, what the transformation in society is supposed to be, right? From this perspective, um, the thing you're actually trying to do is create a society where the average citizen is, you know, maybe not their, maybe they're not this like national political participant, but they they sort of think of what their role in society is in a very explicit way, right? Even if you're a peasant in the countryside, you know, you should be continually trying to improve your operation. You should be sharing ideas. You should be kind of very actively engaged in your work, and and your work is public in a sense, right? It matters for the whole country, and you should have that consciousness. And it seems like, uh, you know, I referenced this earlier, but across the West, uh, kind of regardless of the ideological covering, that actually seems to be the the kind of one of the stable points in liberalism, right? Even in, in Britain, in America, you get the mass party system, uh, in place by the 20th century, right? Pe people kind of are mobilized to participate in national politics, uh, in, right? In in the U.S. famously, right? People are very involved in local institutions. Um, in in and this happens in Germany, you know, and and under socialism, right? That gets taken into this class warfare context where, well, in order to really do that, we also need to overthrow the capitalists, but. You know, kind of regardless of these shifts in ideology, this this central point that we are in some sense mobilizing the population and individual citizens is this recurring theme in 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 all the different ideologies, right? That sort of build up the modern world, and this is interesting to me because this this suggests to me that this might actually be one of the the kind of political advantages right the one of the reasons why liberalism repeatedly wins and sustains itself is that a lot of its competitors are actually fairly suspicious of mobilizing their populations and liberalism is not right and you know and its competitors on that front were obviously communism and fascism um but anytime liberalism was competing with a kind of feudal or pre-modern society it won. It either militarily uh, won, or it just, you know, it managed to convert that country to a modern economy. And, you know, m most of the world now is nominally uh, democratic uh, and has at least nominal elections, even North Korea has these nominal elections. But the other thing that's happened in most of the world is that we have a modern economy and we have, you know, people who are not just rooted peasantry, they're kind of citizens, they're, they're thought of by the state as citizens. And they're mobilized in different ways, right? Both in their work and and in in the way that the regime does.
political rule. So uh, that that's kind of, a, I guess, a long presentation of that. But I, I guess, Dylan, I'd be interested to take that topic out of just the Chinese context and hear how you think about it in terms of this like broader, you know, force for modernity, let's say. Sure. I mean, you've, you've given lots of, uh, lots of examples of, of it outside of China and, and they all in, in some way, um, work along the same lines, you know, that, you know, the, the Maoist language is sort of alienating, but it, it, it's conception of, of democracy and sort of a, a voluntaristic uh, spirit is quite similar if you look at, at those developing states across the line. And, and what it allowed them to do was to mobilize a large amount of people, but also through those uh, governance structures to to make use of the governance innovations of uh, generated by by the localities and I think that's what uh, American federalism does in its in its ideal form and and what what Chinese federalism does in its its ideal form you know motivating uh, the people and and getting those those governance innovations down uh, up to the uh, up to the center, up to the higher levels. So do you think it's possible to have something like modern industrial society without that mobilization element? No, I don't think so. I, I don't think there's any, any great examples of it, um, of it working without something either liberal or, 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 you know, illiberal, um, the, along those those lines and that's that's why the you know the the future in in both the west and 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 in china looks somewhat uh dark because that that element of you know mass democracy or mass participation is is uh disappearing you know elections are always uh basically uh they, they don't matter in china and they don't matter in the west it's that uh, political, the possibility of political participation that that built these um, these civilizations that sort of being the possibility of is, is sort of being uh, foreclosed, I guess. Yeah, it creates this interesting situation where, you know, to, to, I guess, push on what we were saying earlier about China and the West converging on this point, the difference that might actually matter in societies is whether they manage to keep you know, at least like pro-social forms of mobilization going versus, you know, for whatever political reasons, just kind of demobilizing entirely and, and getting into this sort of weird mix of social control and degrowth effectively, right? Where, and which they seem to reinforce each other because, um, you know, the, the hidden thing under degrowth is actually that, the the sort of more widespread wealth that modern societies develop starts to evaporate from the bottom so you now need to have increasing social control over that population and uh, as a result of that you start leveraging more and more of your resources into maintaining the social control mechanisms than into actually generating new wealth and so you know this vicious cycle starts to form 
that's very difficult to arrest. Um, it, uh, you know, I, I, I'd be interested to hear if you expect anyone to buck that trend and actually, you know, it, escape the spiral, uh, so to speak. No, I don't think so. Um, I think the the hopeful examples are people who are just not as countries and societies that are just not as far along the line. I think, um, you know, China faces the the same uh, problem with 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 entering into that cycle that that the West does. And um, I think it has sort of the same. I think China can escape some of the the same uh you know, long-term effects that, that the West will face just because it is a a um, somewhat ethnically homogenous society with, uh, with uh, you know, 5,000 years of history. You know, that that's sort of a, a silly thing to say, but right. it it's is, sort of I think it is somewhat true. That cultural um, um, fabric, you know, and, and, you know, in China and in the West, you can see all these battles over culture there's that excitement about Wang Huning as a as a as a as a brilliant mind but all he's doing is is what what's done in the west is that uh is is trying to maintain a hold over culture because there's not much left yeah. um to look out for say you know say, say more on that actually because it it's um i think you're right in i don't think that Wang Huning thinks he's doing this but you know, we we kind of uh, in the West we started getting into these these the, first the culture war stuff, but then later on this sort of open you know w- weird like caste signaling politics as the actual ability to uh, economically produce and reproduce society started to dry up, and so it, it sounds like you sort of see Wang Huning as the equivalent force in China. And the, like the reason that the incentive is there to move to cultural governance is that the the actual developmentalist energy, let's say, is is just dissipating. Is that sort of your your read on it, more or less? Yeah, I would I would say so. You know, uh, Wang Huning, he a lot is made of his trip to the United States, but uh, you know, his trip to Singapore was even more important. I think where he saw that. Uh, a place that sort of looked like China does now, you know, on a on a much smaller scale, held together by culture, and I think he sees the possibilities of of that. You know, there's not there's not a lot of uh, that's a good way to to fight stability. I think in the minds of the of the of the Chinese uh, leadership, and that's one acceptable battleground that you know energy is being expended on at the moment you know these fights over um you know uh men with too much makeup on tv you know it looks it looks vastly different from what's going on in 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 western cultural battles it's not that doesn't they don't map onto each other exactly but i think you see this the same thing where where politics sorts of burns out even at the uh, the level of the the government itself, and uh, then you 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 go to culture as a as a place to fight. Well, uh, you know, in in that way, um, you I guess you start measuring sovereignty by uh, to the degree that they're able to 
to at least have separate culture wars, right? Because you look at France, for example, and they're talking about Lewokism the same way that the Americans are. So, you know, for, for all the language barriers that they have, they, they haven't really managed to escape this this sort of American cult, like the hegemony of which culture wars you're even fighting to, to begin yeah, with. I mean, even Russia that's... has not really escaped that, I would say, right? Uh, they, I mean, Putin's speeches are basically attacking the, the same people that, you know, the, the kind of like conservative underclass attacks in, 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 in the West itself. Right. Yeah, I, I don't expect Xi Jinping to uh, to give a speech talking about uh, cancel culture, but uh, it is it is it is interesting, and I think to some extent the cultural thing in China is sort of trying to get off the track that um, the West went down. I think I think they see that that um, one way to avoid that that horrible spiral that you talked about before is to is to master culture to make sure that those um, that the uh, you know the that Western hedonistic ideology doesn't take root as something that could threaten party power. I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't think it could. I don't think Western liberal um, culture is uh, is a very. Is, I mean, it's kind of destructive, but I, I don't think it's ever going to take root in uh, in China. So, as uh, maybe a closing question here. Um... You know, I, I think about the fact that if you were to look at the West itself in the period when it was starting to industrialize, you know, I'm thinking here of England in 1700 or Germany even in 1800, you, you know, you have this weird landscape where like fairly advanced forms of, of, of research and of uh, industrial development are, are still literally side by side with, you know, these like decayed versions of the medieval society right it's a very strange landscape um and you know even you get someone like hegel writing and he you know we think of him as a very modern thinker but he literally still lives in a society like that where you know it's it's sort of a more modern ish university system and you have factories but you still literally have peasants in europe uh, with feudal relationships at that point but but what you had to do in that landscape was sort of have the judgment to understand like here's the the energy and the the strong internal logic of these industrial parts and they 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 have it in to outcompete the the these sort of you know medieval remnants and you know what what i expect in a society where let you know we we get this like long decay period from the west and china alike is that you kind of have to look at you know, first is is there any segment or institution in that society that is doing something completely different with a stronger internal logic the the second one might be the you know the frontiers which is a, a topic that we've been also talking about a bit at palladium but you know there there are segments of the world where right like the the full might of the industrial thing has not quite reached to the the strong degree you know you, you go to a place like central asia or even mongolia parts of africa uh you know part parts of the americas even to a degree um the the sort of industrial civilization thing isn't it, it, it's globally powerful but you know the the full might of the thing doesn't exist everywhere so uh, I, I guess my final question here, you know, where where would you look? 
do you think, uh, you know, if, if you're trying to figure out who manages to survive the, the sort of decay period, the decades of chaos or whatever you want to call it, and, and actually figures out something stable, um, you know, what, what does that, do you have an idea of what that looks like or, or is, um, are are you more pessimistic than that? I guess. No, I think I'm 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 less far less pessimistic. I don't think there's decades of of chaos coming. Decades of stagnation, and I think in China's case, you know, several of the pieces I've I've written for Palladium have sort of looked at the issue of of how do you where is that energy being sent? You know, there was so much chaotic energy entrepreneurial energy and people moving around wildly in the in the 1990s and the 2000s and and where does it burn out because it's still bouncing around there and um you know the 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 working age population has peaked um there's the migrant workers are are not going as far afield anymore and they're trying to settle them down in cities but there's still a lot of energy that can't be absorbed into what's being created now. And that's where you, I think the frontiers for China are important. All of that chaotic energy has been shipped out. You know, there are Chinese entrepreneurs in the Philippines, in Cambodia, in Myanmar, in Laos, in Thailand, in Africa. And, you know, that's, that's where it's going. That's where those those the energies being spent in potentially new models on the fringes are being created it won't be in that imperial core of china anymore it'll be out on the margins it'll be in you know a special economic zone in tanzania or something like that is that sustainable to outsource do you think like you know you could kind of imagine that this lasts for a while and then you know, either splits occur or the center just ends up becoming suspicious of this and disciplining its diaspora or its companies abroad as well? Or are you more optimistic in how long-lived um, those frontiers can be for China? I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. I mean, the, the one issue is, is demographics, that there's, that there's not a, it's not like it was in, if, in 1978, where there's just hundreds and hundreds of millions of of young people to mobilize. There's there's still hundreds, a couple hundred million at least. Um, but you, I can see that there there has been attempts to discipline those those frontiers, those, you know, the Duterte uh, legalized uh, online gambling in, in the Philippines and it just sent hundreds of thousands of Chinese there. And the Chinese government has so far proved powerless to to shut it down or or you look at the situation in in Myanmar where there's there's like ethnic Chinese states um, on the border that that are sort of the result of, you know, hundreds of years of migration, but also uh, nationalist soldiers going down there. And now Chinese are, are going there and, and building casino towns that are turning into real towns. And mm. I think those those things can can thrive. They won't be ever be part of the you know the the Chinese Empire they won't be brought in there's the PLA won't march across to to uh, to claim parts of Cambodia but I think that's where all the 
all the energy will be expended and i think it is it is sustainable if those places can sort of form uh alternatives to um the 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 future that that china the the people's republic of china is is going through those people are patriotic they're not challenging the the mm. leadership of the communist party and they're sort of creating their own little experiments i mean time will tell what happens there right and you know you mentioned the demographic situation which we hadn't touched on as much do you see that as being a driver at all of the the sort of technocratic administration thing there just aren't the personnel to man uh you know the old mass party system yeah definitely um it's and it's something that can't be addressed by what the sort of governance that they're pursuing that sort of fourth industrial revolution thing of where they're they're paralyzed from taking big steps you know that demographic crisis in china will not be reversed it it faces the same hurdles as in japan or korea or the united states um, as and it's probably going to get get worse there as 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 china continues to to urbanize it's you know 64% urban at this point but still has a a ridiculously low birth rate and it's not going to come up as as more people uh move into the cities uh and that's that's really another thing that potentially dooms the country to a stagnation and and it's it's not helped by people going out to the margins to to look for adventure maybe if they bring back wives it could it could be okay but uh yeah right okay well uh don i guess we'll wrap it up there for now uh thanks again for your time this morning and uh again the piece we've been talking about is the second death of jiao yulu you can find it online it's also available in palladium 5 in print that's palladium 5 centralizing society uh and uh in if you're interested in receiving palladium 5 they're still available uh visit palladiummag.com/subscribe uh you can sign up there again uh those print editions are quarterly four times a year uh they are not for sale and they're gifts only to palladium members so palladiummag.com/subscribe if you want to sign up uh, and receive prints and other benefits Dylan, thanks again. Uh, this has been a really cool discussion. Um, we always love your your input on on the China stuff, especially. Uh, so hopefully, we'll have you again soon. Sure. Thank you, Ash. Okay, that's all for now, guys. See you next time.